So I'm going to present a case. Uh, this is a real case and I will um, speak about a few topics in the middle um, intermixed with this case. So this is a 55 year old Indian man who was diagnosed with uh, TB several years ago in India. He uh, started treatment multiple times and he never uh, completed. He was never adherent to his therapy. He immigrated to the US in 2003. He would return to India occasionally to visit his family. He was living in North Dakota with his wife, but then he moved to Maryland in late uh, 2018. He was working and living at a friend's hotel. And then in January 2019, he presented to an outside hospital. He had fever, night sweats, and weight loss for about two months. He also had polyuria and polydipsia, and he had a new diagnosis of uh, diabetes. His hemoglobin A1C was, uh, was 10%, so he had really uncontrolled uh, diabetes. And this was his chest x-ray when he was admitted. You can tell he's pretty cachectic and he has bilateral um, cavitary disease. Um, you can especially see a cavity here. Okay, so, uh, so moving on to diagnosis of this gentleman. Um, I'm going to backtrack for a second and talk about diagnosis in general for patients with TB. We can divide diagnostic methods into phenotypic methods and genotypic methods. So phenotypic methods is when you're actually looking at the organism either on a, on, a, on a smear or you're looking at its physical properties after it grows. And so we have the typical the AFB smear and that's also called the Zeal-Nielsen smear. We also have liquid and solid growth media and on these media TB takes between four weeks to eight weeks to grow. Then we have genotypic methods. Those are methods that are looking at uh, nucleic acids or molecular methods. These are PCR-based methods. We're going to spend a little bit of time talking about uh, gene expert. So uh, gene experts, um, I should quickly say there's a gene expert for many things, not just TB. The rapid test that we're doing now for the novel coronavirus, that's also a gene expert. There's a gene expert for C. diff, there's a gene expert for MRSA, but uh, specifically here we're talking about the gene expert for, uh, for TB. So this is a PCR-based uh, test that amplifies this region in MTB called RPOB, which stands for RNA polymerase B. And gene expert for TB, it really answers two questions. The first is, does this patient have TB or not? And the second question is, if this patient has TB, is it resistant to uh, rifampin or not? And the reason rifampin was picked is because rifampin is the most important drug that we use to treat uh, TB with. And this test can be performed in uh, two hours on, uh, on sputum. So the reason um, they picked uh, rifampin is that, uh, again, rifampin is the most common, uh, is the most important drug that's used to treat uh, TB. And they amplified this region in uh, RPOB and 95% of all mutations occur here. And the way that GeneXpert works is that they have these five probes and then they, um, they perform PCR and they amplify it and see how all these probes bind. And then that'll determine whether um, they detect rifampin resistance or not. Most of the world uses GeneXpert as a surrogate test to diagnose MDR-TB. So multi-drug resistant TB is TB that's resistant to both INH and rifampin. Um, most TB that is resistant to just to, uh, to rifampin is also resistant to uh, INH as well. And that's why this is a surrogate test. They're not directly testing INH resistance, but they're assuming that if someone is RIF resistant, that they're also INH resistant. And again, this is a schematic looking at how a gene expert works. You uh, take the sputum and then you add this uh, liquefying inactivating agent, then you put it into the small cartridge. And then this is all, a, this all uh, you have a, uh, 
self-contained PCR uh, assay, and then within a couple of hours, you have um, the answer to those two questions, is TB there or not? So in this uh, example, there was TB detected, and is it rapampin resistant or not? And this was rapampin uh, sensitive. So the study that came out in 2010 was the one that really showed how well GeneXpert works. Um, this was a multi-center trial of about 500 patients. And if someone was smear positive, AFB smear positive, um, GeneXpert was very sensitive. It was over 98% sensitive for uh, detecting uh, TB. If someone was smear negative, um, the sensitivity was only about 70%, but running more than one specimen increased the sensitivity from 72% to 90%. And the specificity was very, uh, very high. Um, so importantly, uh, the non-tuberculous mycobacteria do not cause a positive uh, gene expert reaction. And this test did very well in detecting rifampin resistance and uh, rifampin susceptibility. So back to our case, um, he had an AFB smear performed and that was four plus, which is uh, the highest grade. So he was extremely infectious. And remember his x-ray, he had a lot of cavitary disease. Um, on experts, the expert was MTB detected, no rifampin resistance detected. And so he was initiated on RIFE, isoniazid, rifampin, ethambutol, and uh, PZA. So looking at the history of treatments of uh, TB, we used to have the sanatoria, which you probably heard about. The, uh, individuals who were infected with TB and had active TB disease, they would go to these sanatoria and they were exposed to uh, fresh air and a lot of sunshine. And there was some truth to this therapy, actually, because UV light does kill uh, MTB. Um, there were some other therapies. This is a little more uh, drastic, let's say. You might have heard about plumbage. And so individuals with uh, active TB, they have the uh, pleura removed from the, uh, separated from the lung. And then um, the uh, affected uh, portions of the lung, there were leucites or acrylic balls or ping pong balls inserted in that area and then the affected area of the lung would, uh, would collapse. And again, there was also some truth to this because MTB is an obligate aerobic organism and if you cut off the oxygen supply, it'll die. So some of these patients actually did better with this therapy, just like some did better in treatment with the sanatoria. So this is a, an x-ray of an individual who had this procedure done in the 1950s and you can see in the left uh, lobe, you, there she also has some um, evidence of uh, TB pleuritis. There's calcification there from longstanding uh, TB. So the first randomized uh, double-blinded controlled clinical trial that was ever done in, um, in medicine was actually done in the field of TB. And this was done right after World War II and it was conducted by the British Medical Research Council. Um, this was established in the 1920s, and actually they conducted a lot of the studies which, um, which provided the evidence for our modern um, treatment regimen for TB of RIPE and the intensive phase and the continuation phase. So this first uh, stud, first trial, it compared streptomycin with uh, supportive care for pulmonary TB, and they gave the streptomycin for six months. And those who were given streptomycin, they actually, they did better. Um, they had a decreased uh, mortality rate, they had radiologic improvements, and they also had, were less likely to have clinical deterioration. But as we know, we need to treat TB with more than one drug because it can develop resistance quite quickly. So a lot of these streptomycin recipients, um, after they had received treatment for about three months, a lot of them worsened, and the reason is that they had developed resistance to the streptomycin. 
So because of all these uh, British Medical Research Council trials, we have the, the current therapy that we have with the four drugs that are first-line TB therapy, isoniazid, rifampin, pyrazinamide, and etambisol. So the way that isoniazid works, isoniazid is a really good drug at uh, killing a lot of actively replicating bacilli very quickly. It has what we call early bactericidal activity. So our patient, he has a smear that is four plus. If you give him isoniazid for about a couple of weeks, his um, smear burden would probably drop to about uh, two plus. It will drop very quickly um, with isoniazid. Rifampin, um, again, is the most important drug to treat TB, and that's because it can treat bacilli that are both replicating and those that are dormant. Pyrazinamide is a good drug to treat those bacilli that are dormant. It has very good sterilizing activity. And pyrazinamide is the reason that um, TB can be treated in six months. If pyrazinamide is not included in the regimen, then we have to treat for at least nine months. If ambitol is not really that potent of a drug, but it's there to protect the other drugs and to protect from the development of, of resistance. And the way we monitor patients is by monitoring their AFB smears and cultures. We never use um, gene experts to monitor um, TB and the TB treatment. And that's because expert is a molecular test that'll detect bacilli that are dead, that are not necessarily alive or replicating. And that's why we never use gene experts to, for, uh, for treatment monitoring of active TB. And then remember, we have an intensive and a continuation phase for, uh, for TB, four, uh, four drugs for two months, and then the continuation phase is isoniazid and rifampin for four more months. So back to our case. So this patient was started on uh, four drug therapy in uh, early January, but then about 10 days later, his AST climbed to 824 and the ALT was uh, 385. So his TB medications were held. And then a few days later, his AST and ALT began to, uh, to normalize. So the toxicities of first-line anti-TB therapies, three of the drugs can cause liver toxicity. And those drugs are isoniazid, rifampin, and PZA. Isoniazid, when it causes liver toxicity, tends to cause a transaminitis. The AST and ALT are elevated. Rifampin, when it causes liver toxicity, tends to cause cholestasis. You see elevations in the alkafos, GGT, um, bilirubin. PZA is least likely of the three to cause um, liver toxicity, but when it does cause toxicity, it tends to be the most uh, severe. Other things that isoniazid does, remember isoniazid can cause peripheral neuropathy, so all these patients should be on vitamin B6. Um, isoniazid can cause drug-induced lupus. Rifampin can also cause drug-induced lupus. It can cause the flu-like syndrome that I mentioned earlier with rifapentine. It can cause cytopenias. And then remember, rifampin is a cytochrome inducer, and there are a lot of drug-drug interactions with, uh, with rifampin. Ketambutol will cause optic neuropathy, and that's reversible if caught early. Pyrazinamide, aside from causing hepatitis, can cause hyperuricemia, and ultimately, it can cause gout. And all four of the drugs can cause uh, a dress reaction. So what to do when someone has drug-induced liver injury, just like our patient? So in the TB world, we tend to um, define drug-induced liver injury as having an AST-ALT elevation of five times above the upper limit of normal or higher without symptoms, or if it's three times if the elevation is three times the upper limit of normal or higher with symptoms, and if uh, either of those conditions are met, then we stop uh, therapy. And our patient clearly had met the, that criteria, and so therapy was, uh, was stopped. If someone is an outpatient and they're relatively stable and their TB is not uh, severe or extremely advanced, we might 
hold off on uh, any TB treatment until, the, until their liver enzymes normalize, and then we will resume treatment. But someone like our, like our patient who is admitted to the hospital and has um, extremely advanced TB that, uh, that could actually um, cause um, a lot of morbidity, we would tend to put those patients on liver sparing agents. And that might be a regimen of things like a Fambutal, a later generation fluoroquinolone, linazolid, and uh, amikacin. So our patient had developed um, this reaction, drug-induced liver injury with advanced TB at another hospital, and he ended up being transferred to Midtown for further management. And when we saw him, he was um, pretty stable, except uh, his weight was very low, um, less than 50 kgs. His BMI was uh, 16. And this was a CT. He had bilateral cavitary disease, as um, we remember from the chest x-ray as well. So we started a liver sparing regimen. Um, this was not someone that we'd want to wait without uh, treating his TB. He was treated with ambutol, linazolid, moxie, and amikacin. Um, a few weeks later, we had the results of drug susceptibility testing, and he was pan-susceptible. And again, this is in line with the gene expert. The gene expert um, showed that he had rifampin susceptibility. Um, a few weeks later, the ASD and ALT had normalized, and so we, we challenged him with the, with the rifampin. So I mentioned earlier that rifampin is the most important drug in a TB treatment regimen. It treats bacilli that are both replicating and those that are dormant. Um, many studies have shown that there's greater treatment success and clinical outcomes in those regimens that contain rifampin as compared to those that do not contain rifampin. Um, but when we give rifampin at the typical 600 milligram dose, it's uh, typically underdosed actually. In the past, um, there were many studies that tried to use higher doses of rifampin, but those um, were not too successful. So what happened was those regimens were uh, intermittent regimens. Patients were getting those drugs twice weekly or three times weekly. And what would happen is that um, when you give rifampin in an intermittent fashion, you induce the development of these anti-rifampin antibodies, and then that can lead to a flu-like syndrome. But um, later studies um, have shown that when you administer higher doses, but in one's daily regimen, one's daily regimens, you're less likely to see these uh, flu-like syndromes. Um, the rifampin is much better tolerated and you have a higher likelihood of sputum culture conversion with giving these higher uh, doses of rifampin. And this is a schematic uh, showing this. Um, so on the y-axis, it says week eight SCC. So SEC is sputum culture conversion, and this is a uh, surrogate marker in most trials for uh, TB treatment for, uh, for good outcomes. If someone has sputum culture conversion at eight weeks of therapy, they're more likely to uh, have a successful treatment outcome. And this is showing that as the rifampin um, dose is increased, the more likely you are to have this eight-week sputum culture uh, conversion. And you can see here, the typical dose of rifampin is at 10 mg per kg, 60 milligrams, uh, 600 milligrams, excuse me. And so the, um, the weak eight sputum culture conversion is much less as compared to, uh, to higher doses. So back to our case, um, a month after beginning TB therapy, this patient's uh, sputum smears were still very positive at four plus. Um, in line with what I just mentioned about increasing the rifampin um, to higher levels, we increased the dose to 900 and we uh, resumed the INH. But unfortunately, this patient was still on linazolid and he ended up 
developing mitochondrial toxicity from the linazolid. He developed hyperlactatemia, hypotension, and he had to be transferred to the ICU. So um, those drugs were all discontinued. Um, excuse me, the linazolid was discontinued, but the INH and rifampin were still on board, um, along with other drugs like amikacin and moxie. Um, but then he developed liver toxicity again. This time it was cholestasis. So we stopped the rifampin in the INH, and he was back on a liver-sparing uh, regimen. Um, he had a prolonged course in the ICU. He had failure to thrive. His weight dropped below 40 kgs. Um, his BMI was extremely low. He had refeeding syndrome. But there were issues with, um, with, uh, maintain with repleting his electrolytes. His AFB smear was still 4 plus two months after beginning therapy. And uh, eventually, um, his electrolytes and his uh, repeating syndrome was better managed. He was transferred back to the medical wards. We had failed uh, trials of rifampin three times at this point, so we decided to try rifabutin. So we tried rifabutin. Um, the regular dose of rifabutin is 300, and so we uh, wanted to go to a higher dose, similar to what we would do if the patient was on rifampin, and so we increased the dose to, uh, to 450. So he was on a dose of INH, rifabutin, ethamutol, and moxifloxacin. And uh, we did therapeutic drug monitoring, and the rifabutin levels were uh, therapeutic in his case. All of the cultures, um, despite him continuously being smear positive, AFB4+, um, they were all pan-susceptible. He didn't develop any resistance. Eventually, his liver enzymes all normalized. His weight began to increase, and finally, his sputum smear culture converted to negative in June, and that's five months after uh, beginning TB treatments. And typically what we see is conversion after two weeks of therapy. So this illustrates how long it can take patients with um, extensive cavitary disease and diabetes to convert their, uh, their cultures. So there are many things that can cause delayed sputum smear conversion. It could be drug resistance. Our patient didn't have any evidence of drug resistance. It could be subtherapeutic drug levels. Um, so someone with diabetes who has malabsorption or uh, gastroparesis, um, they're at high risk for developing sub or of having subtherapeutic drug levels. Um, if someone with cavitary lung disease, they could have delayed sputum smear conversion just as our, as our patient did. Um, if you obtain a smear, you're not sure if the bacilli are dead or alive. So it could be the fact that uh, those bacilli are dead and you wouldn't know until you actually have the culture results whether those were dead or live bacilli. NTM, so the NTM, they are AFB smear positive as well, but, uh, but they're not TB. Those can cause a sputum smear to be positive later into therapy. And then HIV as well, that can result in uh, delayed sputum smear uh, conversion. And then one thing I'll say here is if someone has developed drug resistance, we never want to add a single drug to a failing regimen. We would want to construct an entirely new regimen with at least three, three new drugs. So the patient I just uh, presented, he uh, illustrates this interaction between diabetes and, uh, and TB. Um, it's, there's more and more data showing now that diabetes has uh, probably a worse effect on TB than, uh, than HIV. And as much of the world in resource-limited settings, as they undergo the epidemiologic transition, they're moving from a high burden of infectious diseases to non-communicable diseases. And, um, as they begin to adapt, uh, West, adopt Western diets, and then you see higher incidences of diabetes, we're going to be seeing a lot more of these negative interactions between diabetes and, and TB in these high TB incident settings. So diabetes increases the risk for TB infection and reactivation. 
diabetes um, increases the risk for mortality due to TB. It increases the likelihood of cavitary disease, just as in our patients. Um, failure to convert cultures, just as in our patients, subtherapeutic drug levels from malabsorption, increased uh, rates of relapse and reinfection. And it's also been shown that metformin has um, positive benefits besides the glycemic control. Um, metformin actually has been shown um, in vitro to improve intracellular killing, and also um, it'll uh, decrease um, deleterious lung pathology. So if someone has an an overly robust immune system, and then they, uh, it causes lung damage, metformin tends to attenuate that. So looking at a couple more things with TB treatments, there are a couple of um, cases in which we used corticosteroids for, uh, for TB, and those are TB meningitis and TB pericarditis. So the data for uh, TB meningitis using steroids for patients with TB meningitis, it's pretty uh, robust. Um, there was a randomized controlled trial in, the, uh, in uh, 2004 of Vietnamese patients with TB meningitis, and it was comparing dexamethasone versus placebo. And those who received dexamethasone, they had a uh, survival benefit. Um, there was no um, difference in rates of disability, though, um, due to uh, TB meningitis. Um, there were few HIV patients in this uh, population. And importantly, a concern with uh, giving dexamethasone or corticosteroids in individuals with TB, especially advanced uh, TB, is uh, relapse due to, the, uh, due to the steroids. And there was no difference in rates of relapse in those who uh, were given dexamethasone. The data isn't that uh, robust with pericarditis. Um, there's evidence that, it, that steroids decrease the risk of de development of constriction once someone has a uh, uh, pericardial effusion due to TB. Um, in one series in uh, Zimbabwe, prednisolone tended to decrease mortality and it resulted in decreased ascites and decreased jugular venous pressure, but there was no difference in resolution of the effusion on, uh, on imaging. Another meta-analysis uh, recently showed no mortality benefits, um, and all of this is, uh, is up in the air right now. Um, there are still several randomized controlled trials um, addressing, um, trying to address this issue of whether pericarditis, um, whether administering corticosteroids for pericarditis results in a, in uh, improved outcomes. I'm sorry, my slides keep advancing for some reason and I'm um, trying to reverse that. So looking at drug resistant TB, multi-drug resistant TB is TB by definition that's resistant to both uh, isoniazid and rifampin and the mortality rate is much higher than with um, drug-sensitive TB. The mortality rate is 40%. There's also extensively drug-resistant TB, and that is TB that is resistant to INH and rifampin and any uh, fluoroquinolone and a second-line injectable like amikacin or capriomycin. And I was mentioning that we have two cases a year of uh, MDR-TB in Maryland historically. Um, about 10% of MDR-TB cases worldwide are XDR-TB and the mortality rate is much higher. It's 60% and it is extremely difficult to, to treat. You might have heard in the media of uh, totally drug-resistant uh, TB, and this is actually a controversial, um, um, a controversial uh, um, category. And the reason is, is because um, drug susceptibility testing for most second-line drugs is not... Um, universal and it's not standardized. Um, so it's not clear whether there is actually a uh, truly 
totally drug-resistant uh, TB strain um, that, is, uh, that is circulating. So where is MDR most common? So all the countries that have high incidence rates of TB, they also have um, relatively high incidence rates of MDR-TB, but is, this is especially high in, um, in Russia and in countries of the former Soviet Union and in Eastern Europe. So what happened was when um, the Soviet Union collapsed, the healthcare systems of these countries also collapsed and a lot of the drugs to treat TB were available without uh, prescription, without um, regulation. Um, in addition, um, directly observed therapy was no longer in place. And so what happened, there uh, ended up being a lot of circulating um, strains with MDR-TB. So a lot of individuals in those countries, they're at risk for um, development of primary um, drug-resistant uh, TB. And that's in comparison with the rest of the world where most drug-resistant TB, it's acquired after uh, TB that was drug-sensitive, uh, they failed first-line therapy and then they developed resistance. So the traditional regimens to treat MDR-TB are extremely toxic and they're less potent than first-line therapy. They involve injectables that can result in autotoxicity um, from aminoglycosides and then renal failure and electrolyte abnormalities. There are other drugs like cyclosarine, they cause CNS toxicity. Um, other drugs like ethionamide and PAS, um, they are really uncomfortable to take, a lot of GI side effects and hypothyroidism. So there have been uh, drugs that have been repurposed for treatments of MDR and XDR-TB. Um, these are drugs that are used for other conditions. So linazolid we're all very familiar with uh, to treat gram positives and MRSA. It actually has very good activity against mycobacteria including all forms of uh, drug-sensitive and drug-resistant uh, TB. Clofazamine is a drug that's used to treat uh, leprosy. It also has activity against other mycobacteria, not just leprosy. It has activity against both drug-sensitive and drug-resistant TB and against um, um, the, the non-tuberculous mycobacteria, which we mentioned um, about a month ago in our talk on MAC. Bidaquiline and Dralaminate are new drugs that were developed for treatment of MDR and XDR-TB. So bedaquiline is a drug that inhibits mycobacterial ATP synthase. And so if you look at bedaquiline um, compared to placebo, those individuals with MDR-TB who received bedaquiline, um, they were more likely to convert their uh, sputum cultures and they were more likely to do it more quickly than those individuals who were given um, placebo. Um, last year, if you, um, you may have read this in the New York Times, the scientists discover a new cure for the deadliest strain of TB. So these were individuals with XDR-TB, and they were given a six-month regimen of bedaquiline, the drug I just uh, talked about, with linazolid, and a newer drug called uh, pertominid. And these were patients with XDR-TB or MDR-TB who were failing the regimens, or they were intolerant to the regimens from, uh, because of side effects. And these um, patients, they did very well in this study. They had a 90% success rate, which is very incredible. And when you look at the mortality rate of these uh, types of TB, MDR and XDR-TB, they can have up to a 60% um, mortality rate. And the, the regimens that were used in the past were very, um, very toxic and not well tolerated. So 90% success is a very excellent uh, thing. So that was the last uh, slide. And I'd like to open it up uh, to questions if anyone has any.